So let me read Exodus chapter 3. Uh, I'll read the first 15 verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the words of the Lord will stand forever. One of the things I love most about college is that at some point in your time here, a chance encounter that you have with another person, uh, probably in the middle of something mundane, will so change the course of your life. It's one of these chance encounters that just literally changes the direction of your life. Um, this is certainly true, potentially, potentially of relationships. You know, I'll never forget, never forget the first day that I laid eyes on that young Kelly Michelle Myers. Uh, it was, uh, this isn't because it's Valentine's Day tomorrow, I promise. There's no connection. It was, it was the first, it was the day before our first classes, our freshman year at Troy University. And we were at this event, one of these like week of welcome events. Uh, and we were at the BCM. The BCM was having this trivia night related to what we talked about earlier, except it was a Saved by the Bell trivia night. And this girl, this girl was on stage killing it. And I was like, I'm going to marry that girl. <laughs> okay, I didn't really think that at that point. However, that was the first time I saw her. I remember. Kelly, I remember. Anyway, so, back, sorry, it's a lot of people between us. We'll talk about it later. The, <laughs> You never know, like a chance encounter will change the direction. You're like, your job will work out this way, right? 
your job, your first job may be connected to that chance encounter that you had with somebody who knew somebody who had that connection or maybe at uh, the career fair or something like that. This is also, just as I was thinking about it this week, this is really one of the reasons that I love, and many of you have probably loved uh, the soundtrack, at least, to the musical Hamilton. The whole thing about Hamilton is is these chance encounters, like the way uh, at least Lin-Manuel Miranda tells the story is based, obviously, a lot on the real history of this chance encounter between Hamilton and Burr. And he builds this whole story about all these life events where they keep coming across each other. It begins that way, and it ends that way, ironically, in the duel, uh, of course, which leads to Hamilton's death. And even that line of, yes, sir, we keep... What? (laughs) Sorry, guys. Hamilton died in real life. Um, That's a thing. Okay, so... You've got this, this chance encounter that just changes the direction of people's lives. And I'm going to give you a spoiler from Hamilton. I haven't seen it. I just listened to the soundtrack a billion times. <laughs> Even at the end, you have Burr who talks about after Hamilton dies when he says, when Alexander aimed at the sky, he may have been the first to die, but I'm the one who paid for it. I mean, just the way that the, the course of their lives were, were changed because of their encounters with one another. Chance encounters change everything. In tonight's passage, we have this chance encounter. Now, we know it's not really chance. We could call it a providential encounter. This is God coming to meet Moses. And the way that this begins to change the course of Moses' life and all of Israel's life, and really the course of history, through this encounter. And we learn three things about God through this encounter. We learn that He has a voice, that He has a name, and He has a plan. First, here's what... We learn about God. He has a voice. What I love about this story also is that it it starts with Moses doing the most mundane, normal, boring stuff when he has this encounter. He's keeping sheep. Like he's a shepherd at this point. And he's keeping sheep and he's up on this mountain. And the mountain idea becomes a huge theme throughout Moses' life. We'll pay attention to that as we go along. But he's on this mountain with his sheep. And then this encounter He sees this bush which was on fire, but it was not consumed. And so Moses thought, well, that's intriguing. (laughs) And we would think the same thing. And so he kind of goes near it to figure out what's going on. And he hears this voice from this bush that was not consumed. And it said, Moses, Moses, the burning bush speaks. And the passage tells us that it's an angel of the Lord, which means it's a messenger of the Lord, which means this is the Lord speaking to Moses in this particular way calling him by name. He knows who he is and he speaks to him exactly where he is in his normal, mundane moment. Now this is so important for us to catch right off the bat because here it is. God speaks. He's not silent. He's not mute. He's not hidden. He speaks. He's not quiet. God speaks to His people by name and He speaks directly into their lives because He knows them. And He knows where they are and He knows what they're going through. And sometimes I think we look at passages like this one or times where God spoke to other people in Scripture like Abraham or we think of how God spoke through the prophets or even like Jesus' disciples who spent time with Him. And you may think like I do sometimes where you, you think, well, it would have been a lot easier to believe if... God would speak like that to me. I don't know if you've ever thought that. For instance, there's this one amazing moment in the New Testament where Jesus was with his three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they went up on a mountain, another marker. They went up on this mountain, 
And something amazing happens. They, they get a glimpse of the glory of God in the person of Jesus as he is transfigured before them, as the text says. It's this transfiguration moment. We don't know exactly what they saw, but we do know what they heard. There was this voice. The voice of God came in this moment where Jesus' glory is being revealed to some extent. And the voice said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And also there are two other people there. It's so interesting. There are two other people. So there were the three disciples and there was Jesus and there was this voice. But somehow through God's miraculous work, Peter, James and John saw two other men. It was Elijah and it was Moses. Again on a mountain. Again, hearing the voice of God say, this is my son. Listen to him. Now think about this for a moment. How incredible that moment would have been for those five men to witness this. You might think that must be nice to be able to hear God's voice. It would be a lot easier to go about my life if God would just speak like that. I want to encourage you with something that I think is absolutely amazing. This is a verse I came across just recently And it has just stayed with me. So years after that moment, one of those men, Peter, went on to write a letter to some Christians. And he actually talks about that moment. He talks about that moment where he was witnessing this transfiguration and how amazing it was. And I'll paraphrase from 2 Peter 1. And he basically says, by the way, we didn't make any of this up. We saw it with our own eyes. We knew him. We walked with him and we saw him and we saw him resurrected. And he talks about that moment where he sees Jesus on the mountain and he hears this voice saying, this is my son. Listen to him. But then Peter says something so incredible right after he says, I saw it. He says this. But you, Christian, you have something even better. You have the scriptures. You think about what he's saying right there. He says, literally, you have something more reliable than that moment I had on the mountain. You have the scriptures. The claim that Peter is making is this. Do you want to hear the voice of God? Do you want to hear God speak into your existence, into your life? What he's saying is he already has. And these words really are living and they're active and they are continually speaking. God's words are speaking into your life right now. You don't have to go up on a mountain hoping to hear a whisper because God screams through the pages of Scripture. Through the pages of the Bible that sits in your backpack or you know, is embedded in the app on your phone, God speaks. He screams. You know that feeling you have when you meet somebody on campus and you think, I'd really like to get to know them more. Now that could be, you know, it the BCM on a Sunday night before classes begin and that kind of way. But it also could just be somebody that's really cool and you would like to just spend time with them and get to know them more. So how do you do it? You get to know them more by spending time with them. Like Facebook stalking only gets you so far. You talk to them. You engage in conversation. You ask questions. You listen to what they have to say. What I'm telling you is that a relationship with God is no different. Do you want to hear Him speak? Open up your Bible. And that, that's a real application. And I don't say that to guilt you. I say that to say, like, he has spoken. And he speaks daily through his word. 
His words are living and active. That's a real application from this text. God continues to speak. And we have, as Peter says, something even more reliable than an audible voice. We have the written words of God for our knowledge of Him and a deeper relationship with Him. What a gift we have for our ordinary lives. Something so extraordinary is the voice of God speaking. It's amazing. And so not only did God speak to Moses by calling him by name, he actually then reveals his name. So names in the Old Testament were a much bigger deal uh, than they typically are today. Your name may mean something. You may have some very significant meaning to your name. My name means absolutely nothing. Like, it means nothing. It means, I don't know what it means. It means, like, read. Like, it's a family name, but not my family. Like, it's just a random name. My parents, I've asked them before, like, why? Like, why read? And uh, the story goes, well, my mom says, I was pregnant, and we didn't know of a name yet, and we heard somebody on the street get on to their kid for doing something wrong, and they said, read! And we said, that sounds good. (laughs) And then they've literally used my name in that same, like, way ever since. (laughs) Read! Like, that's the story behind my name. Your name may mean something. Like, names in the Old Testament always meant something significant. Names really represented someone's identity. A name was who someone is. Like, it's their essence. And so you have this moment where God is giving Moses his name. But it's not just his name. He's showing him who he is. Now, let me read the verses again, 13 and 14. When Moses said to God, I've come to the people of Israel to say to them, or if I come to the people of Israel to say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. Okay, so the name of God is I am who I am. Now, I know that sounds sort of odd at first, but it says so much more than we might realize because God is not just giving Moses his name. He's showing him who he is. It's very important. Not just a name, it's his identity. All right, this is going to be a bit technical, but hang with me for a second. I am who I am is really just a derivative of the Hebrew verb to be. So I am is coming from the verb to be. The four Hebrew consonants that make up the verb to be are yod, hey, vav, hey. But if you look at it like in the English transliteration, you have what looks like y-h-w-h. Okay, following? That's the four letters that represent that verb, that come from that verb. So we don't know how the Hebrews would have pronounced his name, but we do know that they wouldn't write it very often. They would come up with other symbols, and often they would substitute the word Adonai instead of God's name. And Adonai means Lord. So in the Old Testament, in the original Hebrew writings, a lot of times it would say Adonai instead of Yod, hey, Vav, hey. Now, here's why this is important for us, because at some point throughout history, Christians began to add vowels to those four consonants to make it a little bit easier to pronounce, because we didn't know how it was pronounced. And so that's where you get Yahweh from. Yo, hey, Vav, hey, Y, H, W, H. Throw in some vowels, you get Yahweh. So it's like a transliterated word. And so that's why you see in a lot of your Bibles, if you're open up right now to Exodus 3, a lot of your Bibles will substitute capital L-O-R-D in place of Y-H-W-H. Are you following me? That's to keep in the tradition 
um, of what the Hebrews were doing beforehand. So that's God's name, technically. Y-H-W-H. But what does that mean? Again, God is not just revealing His name, but He's showing us something about His character, His identity. This will be a great study to do, but I'm going to fly through just a couple of things that this means. Four things specifically that God's name tells us about who He is. Think about it. I am. It means He's independent. God determines His own existence. No one else does. No one defines who He is. He determines who He is. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. He is totally self-existent. God is also infinite. There is no beginning with Him and no ending. He is eternal in His being. God was not created. He is the Creator. God was not spoken into existence. He speaks things into existence. He has always been and always will be. He is infinite. Third, He is immutable. These all begin with I, by the way. He's immutable. What that means is God is unchanging. He is fixed, constant, unvaried. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no changing with Him. And fourth, God is transcendent. Tricked you. Doesn't begin with an I, but there's another I that we'll come to in a second. God is above all things. He's transcendent. He's above all things, totally autonomous from His creation. The I am is above all earthly power, and no one can actually reach Him or be in a relationship with Him unless He condescends to us. And so this is why the whole bit about Moses taking his sandals off and and the, the place is holy, because God is coming down to Him. So the name of the living God is I Am, independent, infinite, immutable, transcendent. And so in revealing this to Moses, he is showing that he is the exact opposite of Moses. Think about this. In giving his name, he's also telling Moses that you are none of these things. But God was exactly who Moses needed in that very moment. That God is everything that Moses needed him to be. And he is the same for you and for me. Because think about us. We are not independent. Even though we try to operate as if we are independent and college pushes that in you and it's applauded in you and we feel we just want to scream, I'm independent now because I'm 18. And we like want like we want this feeling of like we're on our own. But we know that like we have to surround ourselves with people who care about us. Like we have to be in community for people who care about us and will carry us through especially difficult season. Our supposed independence is actually the thing that will do us in if we start to lean into it too much. Because we scream independence, but what we actually feel inside is lonely and afraid. We're not independent. Also, we're not infinite. We are finite creatures. And our days are so numbered. We can't add a single day to our lives. We're fragile and temporary and we feel it daily. We try to numb ourselves from this reality in all sorts of ways. I think one of the ways that you numb yourself from this reality is you try to keep yourself very, very busy. Fill your schedule. Fill your calendar so that you will not feel finite. And so you stay very, very busy to kind of prove yourself that, that you know, I'm not finite at all. But we're so limited, and we don't like to feel limited. 
Also, we're not immutable. We change a lot, actually. Uh, We change a lot, sometimes too much. We even change what we're like on a given day, sometimes depending on the crowd that you find yourself in. You may have been somebody three hours ago with this other thing, and now you're here in this room, you're going to kind of be this guy. We change who we are in all sorts of ways. My plans change. My commitments and my priorities change. My cravings for lunch change as I walk through the core dining hall. If I just sniff pizza, I'm moving to pizza. Like, we change. It's not a bad thing, I want pizza. My point is we change. This was the case for Moses. He knew enough about himself as we've studied this story. He knew that he was a runaway murderer. Turned shepherd who was just trying to disappear into a mountain, doing his shepherd thing. And he couldn't do anything to save his people. He knew he was limited. So he needed to know that God was able to do it for him. And in every way, God's name shows that he is exactly the person Moses needed. And he is exactly who we need at all times, in all seasons, in each and every circumstance. And so what I want to say to you is that when you feel limited, like when you feel finite or when you feel weak, you're beginning to see who you really are. And when you see who you really are, you will then begin to see who God really is for you. And that's so important. It's like when when you're sick and you just try to fake it, and you just try to kind of like power through your day anyway, and you're just like, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm gonna feel strong and I'm gonna like feel well. But really, when when you slow down and when you stop and when you see a doctor and you get the medication you need, you will be able to really get through in a healthy way. We need to see who we really are so that we can really deal with who we really are and God can be who He really is for us. Now, I'm going to say a lot more about this next week. Uh, We're going to really lean into this idea of weakness and Moses' response to this. But I just want you to see that God is transcendent. He is so full of grace that He doesn't stay hidden. But instead, He makes Himself known. He has a voice, he has a name, and he begins to give Moses even a plan. The transcendent God has made himself imminent, and he's drawn near his people. That's the other eye. I told you I'd come back to it. Transcendent God has made himself imminent. He doesn't keep himself distant, but he draws near his people. And he shows us who he is and what he's doing. And I love that moment. The living God has a plan. It comes up in verse 10 and following. When God begins to tell Moses that he's up to something. He doesn't have to tell him, but he tells him, I've got a plan. And he tells him he's got a plan for Israel and he's got a plan for Moses. His plan for Israel is to take them out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land where they'll find find rest. And he says that he sees his people and he sees their suffering and their affliction and he's heard their cries and their groanings and he knows their suffering and he intends to deliver them from it. He is working his rescue story for Israel. One commentator said that as Moses sees the bush that is on fire but not consumed, God sees his children who are in the furnace, but they are not yet destroyed. And he plans to bring them out very soon. I love that picture. And so not only does God have a plan for Israel, he has a plan for Moses to be the one to bring them out of Egypt. And Moses responds by saying, "Mm, pass. Like immediately. He's like, ah. I'm good. That's the part of the story we're going to dive into next week. All the ways that Moses wants out. It's amazing. It comes up more in the next chapter too. The excuses he gives, the weaknesses that he recognizes, rightfully so, but he comes to the wrong conclusion. Moses says, 
I can't. And God says, right, but I will. That's the exchange that we'll get to next week. Because the living God has a plan. And His plan is to rescue His people out of their bondage and set them free. And He will even use a very weak Moses to accomplish His purposes in this world. This same God has a plan for you. And He has a purpose for you. And I think this is good news because this means that your life is not worthless. Your life is not worthless. It's not purposeless. You are not worthless. It means that your worth is not dependent on something that you bring to the table either. Moses did not have purpose on his own because he was this incredible shepherd. Your deep worth and purpose will not come from your major or your skill set or your resume or the career you choose or your friend group or the club that you belong to or your GPA or keeping that scholarship or honors or whatever. But instead, your central worth and value is given to you by God as a child of Him. And so He gives you intrinsic value, being that you are made in the image of God, but also He gives then purpose to those very things. Like He gives purpose to your studies. He gives purpose to your friend groups and your clubs and your organizations. He gives purpose to all of those things. It doesn't mean those things are worthless, but He gives worth to them. You don't get worth from them. Does that make sense? He gives purpose. So how do you know your purpose? How do you know what you are to do in these situations? Well, one, I would say we need to begin to listen to the voice of God. And we need to respond to the person of God as He's revealed Himself. In other words, we need to encounter God ourselves. Rico Tice is this pastor in England, and he tells this story that I just love when he one time was waiting in London for a friend to pick him up. And he was in this stairwell, kind of in this like area of this building, waiting for a friend to pick him up outside the door. And this other guy comes in and stands with him. He's also waiting for a ride. And he thinks, like, this guy looks so familiar, but I don't think I know him. And, and he couldn't figure out where he knew him from. And, and they're kind of like, you know, the British version of, like, what's up, what's up? And then they move on. Is that British? I don't think it's British. <laughs> and so they don't talk at all, but they're quietly in there. He said, like, awkwardly quiet in the stairwell for five minutes together. Well, then the other guy's ride comes and calls him. He says, William, come on. And William comes on out. And then he leaves. And then it hits Rico who that was. This wasn't just some dude named William who looked familiar. This was Prince William. In the stairwell with this guy for five minutes. And he said nothing to him except like the British version of what's up. That's it. He like the missed opportunity. And he tells the story in such a funny way because he talks about all the things that he wished that he would have talked about. Like, just think about what would you do in that moment? And all the things that he wished he would have asked him about or asked him for. But he just blew it. He missed the opportunity. He uses this to say, and I want to use it the same way. Are you aware? Are you aware of the many opportunities that you have on a day-to-day basis to encounter the living God? Are you aware of the many opportunities in your day-to-day mundane shepherd life to encounter God himself? 
in class, in the library, walking to your dorm or apartment in community, at lunch, across the table in relationships with your friends. So many opportunities that you have to encounter God Himself. How? Primarily, it's through His Son, Jesus. Because it's amazing that one of the main things that Jesus is called in the New Testament is the Word of God. The Word of God made flesh, as John puts it. In other words, you don't just get to hear the voice of God in Scriptures. You see the words of God in His own Son, personified. You learn even more about the character of God through the person of Christ. So where He speaks, God speaks. Where He moves, God moves. You encounter God by encountering the person of Jesus Christ. And that's so important. That is the chief way that we encounter God is through His Son. Don't miss Him. Don't miss Him in the ordinary stuff of life. And not only is Jesus the voice of God, but He's also the name of God personified. This comes out a lot in the New Testament, especially in John's Gospel. When Jesus was talking one time to a very, uh, like a group of very religious people, and they were basically having an argument, he and these Jews, and they were comparing Jesus to their father Abraham. And Jesus was going back and forth with them uh, on this comparison. And he says something about himself that literally made them want to kill him, literally actually led to his death. Because he told them, I love this line, but he told them, your father Abraham was waiting his whole life to see me. And they're like, you're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about? And that's when he says, before Abraham was, I am. What's Jesus saying? He's taking this exactly from Exodus chapter 3. As soon as he said that, the text says they picked up stones to stone him to death because they understood exactly what he was saying. Jesus was saying that he is not just, you know, the son of God who's come into the world. He is God, the son who has come into the world to speak into the world, to reveal the very purpose of God, the character of God. The great I am who spoke to Moses in the burning bush speaks into this world through His Son, Jesus Christ, through His life, His death, and His resurrection. Have you encountered, have you encountered Jesus Christ? If so, that one chance encounter that we know really isn't by chance will change everything about your life. It will change everything about your life. It will change how you approach school, how you engage in the culture around you, how you view your community. Let me end by giving you three ways, three specific relationships that will be shaped by your encounter with Jesus. One, when you encounter Jesus Christ, it begins to shape how you view yourself. I alluded to this earlier, but let me say it again. You understand that you are created in the image of God, endowed with incredible beauty and worth, value, honor, and dignity. Not because of what you do, But because of who you are to Him, you are loved by the transcendent God who would make Himself imminent and near, that His Son would enter into this world to take on death itself so that you might be with Him, your finite self might be with Him in His infinite glory. That is how loved you are. 
And when you begin wrestling with how Jesus sees you, it will change the way that you see yourself. Two, when you encounter Jesus Christ, it shapes how you relate to God. Because when you truly meet the living God, you will begin to desire to honor him with your life. And that's not just in circles like this where you sing some songs and you pray some prayers and you look like you have your life together. But it's also in areas where it's a lot harder to honor God in your life. Where like obedience really does matter. And where God has revealed things in his word that he calls you to. You begin to listen to those things at a deeper level. And you care what he has to say about so many things. We don't do this perfectly, but once we've encountered his grace and mercy, it will lead us to a deeper desire to please him with our lives. And thirdly, when you encounter Jesus Christ, it shapes how you relate to people around you. It will inform how you take criticism. It will inform how you handle conflict, how you move toward people who are hurting instead of running and retreating away from them. How you engage with people who come from a totally different perspective or background than you. Once you encounter Jesus, it totally transforms every other encounter in your life. I want to give you one example of what this might look like. Recognizing that we are in the middle of celebrating Black History Month in our country. I've been reading and studying more about the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And his leadership and his ministry. And one of the things that I've been so particularly struck by in reading his work, while we can't wait is not only the way that King's encounter with Jesus shaped the way that he viewed his fellow people of color and the rights that he was fighting for, but also it shaped the way that he viewed and treated his enemies during the civil rights movement. So central to King's teaching was that all mankind, all mankind was created with dignity and honor and respect because we are God's children. And to that, of course, we say amen, but he went on to apply this to the very people, to the very people who were oppressing him and the movement. You know that when people signed up to volunteer for some of the nonviolent protests, especially in Birmingham, 63, which is when this book is based around, during some of the most violent periods of the racially divided South, The king and the other leaders who organized some of these nonviolent demonstrations, they had volunteers sign an agreement. You may have studied this in history, but they had this agreement. It was often called the Ten Commandments of Nonviolent Protest. And I want to read you those Ten Commandments of Nonviolent Protest because listen to how much of the gospel comes through these instructions for what this protest should look like. Every volunteer was required to sign a commitment card which read, I hereby pledge myself, my person, and my body to the nonviolent movement. Therefore, I will keep the following ten commandments. Number one, meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. It begins there, God speaking through His Word. I'm just going to read them. I don't need to give commentary on each one. Two, remember always that the nonviolent movement seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Number three, walk and talk in the manner of love. For God is a God of love. Number four, pray daily to be used by God in order that all, might, all men might be free. Number five, sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Number six, observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rule of courtesy. Seven, seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. 
Number eight says refrain from the violence of fist and tongue and heart. Number nine, strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. And ten, follow the directions of the movement and the captain of the demonstration. I just think it's amazing. King states in that book that part of his goal in leading these demonstrations was to not just free black men and women from their oppressors in this country, but to actually free the oppressors from their own sins. By taking down the evil systems which permitted racist men, particularly in the South, to continually mistreat, abuse, and suppress black men and women in this country. In other words, Dr. King's encounter with the living God freed him to love both his neighbor who he agreed with and fought for, but also his enemies who wouldn't return the favor. Encounters like this one can change everything. They can change the world. And they have. Would you pray with me?